When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome into another episode of the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. I'm Scott Agnes. Well, we are more than five days into this ongoing search for the Pacers' next head coach. And by no surprise, nothing has leaked out of the franchise. There's an obvious list of candidates, whether it's Brian Shaw, Nate McMillan, Mike D'Antoni, Jeff Hornacek, David Blatt, etc., We don't know for sure who the Pacers are going to interview or if any interviews have taken place. What we do know is later this week is important. Much of the basketball staff will be in Chicago with the rest of the league for the NBA's pre-draft combine. And it is during this time when lots of meetings are held for the training staff and the strength and conditioning coaches. They'll have league-wide meetings, awards will be handed out, etc., For front offices and coaching staffs, it's an opportunity to evaluate potential draft picks or guys that you bring to Summer League or bring on in free agency. One other thing it's good for is coaching interviews, both from a head coach and assistant coach standpoint. To learn more about three potential head coaches for this Indiana Pacers franchise as they seek to hire their 15th coach in franchise history... I caught up with two individuals who cover other teams on a regular basis and interacted consistently with Brian Shaw, Mike D'Antoni, and Jeff Hornacek. Well, first I want to get a perspective on Brian Shaw, the beloved Indiana Pacers associate head coach for two seasons. After a dozen head coaching interviews, he finally got his opportunity. It was in Denver, and unfortunately he didn't make it through his three-year contract. He was fired Halfway through the second year, at four multitude of reasons, didn't get along with the players, injuries, not seeing eye-to-eye with management, and just personnel issues that didn't fit what he was trying to do. So for that, I bring in Jeff Morton of DenverStiffs.com and a co-host of the Colorado Sports Guy podcast to talk about B. Shaw and what exactly transpired over in Denver. How you doing, Jeff? Oh, how you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. I'm doing well, thanks. Let's get right to it, because there is so much for us to discuss. Someone brings up Brian Shaw and his tenure in Denver. What immediately comes to mind? Um, chaos. <laughs> that bad, huh? Wow. See, I thought he, I thought uh, he would be a terrific head coach, and obviously there were circumstances that he dealt with, unique personalities, a lot of injuries, especially in year one. But I was just surprised to, I hate to call it this, but kind of the fallout of him being a head coach for the first time. Well, if there's this, I mean, this is a, um, there's many layers of what happened with uh, Brian Shaw that, I mean, uh, we could go back to, well, I can't tell you what, I'll start, I'll start from the beginning. Um, the Nuggets uh, fired George Carl with very little time left before the NBA draft. Uh, he won the Coach of the Year award, and then suddenly, like I think a week later, Josh fired him. Josh Kroenke fired him. 
Well, before that, Masai Ujiri, I think right before that, Masai Ujiri had left. So the Nuggets were left without a coach and a front office. And Josh Kroenke was doing a lot of the coach interviewing concurrent with his GM interviewing. Now, he hired Tim Connolly, and then six days later, they hired Brian Shaw. The problem with the whole structure of the situation was they had given, because basically Brian Shaw was interviewed technically before Tim Connolly, a lot of the power structure was wonky, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. within the Nuggets. And it kind of left things really odd, specifically because the Nuggets had no scouting department and no everything. The entire front office structure was gone. That's beautiful. And left Shaw and Connolly to do a lot of the heavy lifting by themselves. And Shaw's imprint was heavily on that first draft. However... Other decisions he made, like his assistants and all that stuff, really let him down. But where the crux of the problem began is the whole genesis of why Shaw came into being. And that certainly was not his fault. He got off to a poor start because of unique circumstances. And I think we all could agree that George Carl should have never been fired in the first place. But that's neither here nor there at this point. <laughs> with with Brian Shaw, what did you see with how he established relationships with the players? Because that was one of the big things here in Indianapolis, is he was the perfect guy to motivate his players, to, to share Kobe's stories that kept Paul George just chomping at the bit to get out there and work so he could work as hard as, as Kobe. And Brian Shaw involved himself in the games and things, and that's a little bit different. And by the games, I'm talking about after practice, and that's a unique position that an assistant coach can do rather than a head coach. It's interesting. I thought when he was hired, I'll, I'll just digress a little bit and say when he was hired, I liked the hire. Because I think the Nuggets needed a different approach, and I thought the Nuggets were going to fully commit to it. What had happened, essentially, after the whole chaotic genesis of his coaching birth in Denver, head coaching birth in Denver, was when he got to the players, he made a what I think it was a fatal error, basically belittling the 57 wins they got the year before. Um, said, nah, well, I'm going to teach you guys what it takes to win in the playoffs. That immediately got the players, the entire roster defensive, the ones that were left over from George, who weren't happy George was fired. That basically set the tone for the rest of his tenure. And I think if you asked him, and if he was honest moments, you would say he made a mistake. Because you can have the grand ideal, but the execution, basically what I'm saying is some things you can have in your head, but you shouldn't say, and that was one of those things. And the players, particularly Ty Lawson and Kenneth Fareed, never responded to it. And that just kind of was the genesis in 2013 of what happened the preceding uh, year and a half. So fair to say that those guys in particular, and Ty Lawson's been here, those guys tuned Brian Shaw out after he kind of discounted what they had done the year he hadn't been there. Yeah, it was, it was basically I know better, and I'm not excusing them, but that's just how it started. It was on them to be professionals, and there was this element in the Nuggets rock room that certainly wasn't. 
Um, they had some difficult elements like JaVale McGee and Nate Robinson that were brought on. Um, you add that to the already uh, skeptical, I should say, Ty Lawson and Kenneth Reed, and you basically had a, a, a locker room that wasn't going to listen to Brian Shaw, and it just it just spiraled from there. It really did. What was the Denver reaction to the video? I believe it was Ty Lawson posted of Brian Shaw wrapping the pregame game plan. To me, knowing Brian from his time in Indianapolis, I took that as him trying anything he could to reach these guys, but I'm guessing it was kind of mocked in Denver. Well, uh, well listen, I, I, I was familiar with his rap brief rap career, if you ever anyone's ever heard his song. Yeah, yeah, I've talked did. to him about that. It's hilarious. In 94, we, we spoke to him frequently about that time and his appearance on Family Feud and all that stuff. And there was there was that that was going on. That was a desperate man by that point. And when Ty posted it, he was clearly mocking him is what was going on. They did Ty, Ty, did that, Ty, Ty you guys, there's another hour of a podcast we could do on Ty Lawson alone. He's a unique cat, too. yeah. <laughs> but there is a there is a element of of how is, I don't know. He was desperate, but at the same time, at that at a certain point, Brian Shaw knew he was going to be this wasn't working, and was desperately trying to, in my opinion, get the organization to fire him. And it began with him talking about millennials and he can't relate to the team and all this stuff, which could have been true, but. The biggest problem Brian Shaw had, and you know, he had some good attributes about him. I think he's an honorable man, personally. You know him too. He's, I think, he's a genuinely decent person who wants to do what's right. Um, I think he was let down by the fact that he wanted his boys with him to help him coach, uh, specifically Lester Connor, and well, mostly Lester. That let him down tremendously. Because there was no more reviled person in the Nuggets locker room than Lester Connor. And I think he was trying to set up the same dynamic that he had with Frank Vogel, where, you know, Vogel was kind of the nice guy, and Shaw was the one, at least this is what he imparted to us, Shaw was the one who had to be the, the tough guy. And I think he kind of wanted the same dynamic, it just didn't work. It, it just didn't work. Lester was causing trouble, and no one respected him, and it made him coaching the players on the actual roster almost impossible. Wow. I had a long conversation before his first game back in Indianapolis, and one quote that was telling to me, although I have a brand-new perspective with more of this background history, is him saying, and I quote, what I quickly found out was that the mindset and mentality of the guys here is completely different than the guys on the Pacers. I took that in him saying, we're mentally weak, we don't have a winning culture, and there's a lot of personnel changes that I would like to consider. Well, there was one in particular, one person in particular that Brian Shaw had the worst time with, and that was Kenneth Fareed. And that was an ongoing drama uh, basically throughout the entire year and a half that Brian Shaw was here. Um, those two just didn't see eye to eye. It was constant drama between the two of them. And it got to the point where every time we would talk to Brian Shaw, 
in a presser afterwards, before the game, during practice, he would start talking about someone and drift into something about Kenneth Farid, something negative. It was just, it was so consuming for him that that was going on. And it would, and listen, Kenneth Farid is a sensitive person and he's got some issues and there was, the the, the relationship was never going to work. And I don't think Brian liked um, Kenneth Farid's game. Evidenced by the fact that they brought on J.J. Hickson, one of the first moves that, that, that they did was sign J.J. Hickson as a free agent. Which, if, if you know, it's like it was never going to work. Um, J.J. was more of a traditional four, well, they played him at center a lot. And that was something that Shaw was really wanting to push, and that put the bullseye on Kenneth. And, of course, that was going to have an issue in the locker room. And... You know, quite frankly, it's it's just it wasn't going to work with. And if you're going to work with uh, quote unquote stars or people who think they are, it's just you're going to have to handle them a little differently. And uh, a little of that was on Shaw, but it's mostly on Kenneth Reed. He just didn't make it work. When I think of Brian Shaw, I immediately think of the relationship that he built with. Paul George with Lance Stevenson and he challenged mm-hmm. them and it ultimately helped his growth. Was there anyone that he made a connection with in his short time in Denver? Oh, Quincy Miller, who's no longer in the league. Um, and there was that Andre Miller a- fallout too. Oh, the Andre Miller <laughs> thing was. <laughs> if I remember correctly, Andre Miller had some kind of plane streak and B. Shaw ended that. Yes. He, he had never had a DNPCD. Okay. He had never had a did not play coach's decision ever in his career. And the, when it happened, it was weird. Um, it was New Year's Day. And Andre, I don't, I don't know if you know anything about Andre. Andre's not. Um, it's not going to hold back. I know that. He doesn't hold back, but he's not a guy that causes a tremendous lot of on-court drama. He's extremely respected in the league. There was, in fact, um, I would say in the Nuggets locker room, you know, listening to him with his high voice, there was not one player who was respected more than Andre Miller. He just carried that that kind of that weight, that kind of presence in the locker room. Um, what happened was probably needed to happen is that they wanted time for Nate Robinson because the front office had hired and signed him. And they wanted to kind of explore that relationship, and along with Ty Lawson, and that left out Andre Miller, and that was more of a probably something this front office shouldn't have done to assign Nate Robinson. It led to problems, uh, and then finally Shaw kind of said, "All right, I'm not going to play him," just to kind of nip this problem in the bud. Shaw didn't communicate this with Andre, and then. What was what the fallout was was there was this kind of like this feeling that Shaw was trying to disrespect Andre in front of the the fans and the players. That kind of exacerbated itself, led to Andre basically shouting at him on the bench, and then the fallout the next day. I was there the next day, um, standing in front of the Nuggets locker room, waiting for them to come out, and <laughs> it was. His face was, was completely ashen. That was basically the biggest sign that it wasn't going to work out in Denver. 
just the way that whole thing happened, it transpired. He looked miserable. They had to have meetings with every single player. It's it just wasn't going to work. And I think that was the beginning of the end. It just took a full calendar year for it to be realized. He was just there a year and a half, and obviously things didn't go smoothly. But can you evaluate his on-court presence, his in-game adjustments and such? Um, I know that he values traditional position basketball. Um, and I do know that he is heavily, heavily influenced by Phil Jackson. Whether he'll openly admit it or not, the Phil Jackson triangle thing it's, he really wanted to try it in Denver, and it was never going to work with Kenneth Fareed. They ran elements of it eventually, but it just wasn't going to work with a Fareed type of player. So they tried, they kind of incorporated this. On, on the floor, I think he was okay. I don't think he, I don't think he was the greatest tactician, but he did well. And he's a kind of a guy, I think, that if he's given time, he will get better. Um, he will learn from his mistakes, and I think this was a valuable experience for him because now he knows what not to do on the court and off the court. I think he will be a better coach. And there's nothing um, like so firsthand experience being the guy. Yes, you just you have to know now. And I think, listen, it, it, there was there's just there was so many things that went wrong at the at the at the right wrong at the right time. I should is the best way to put it. It was just, he didn't have a chance. I loved it when, yeah. I, when, we, when we first started. You go, how, how long do you have to talk about B-Shaw? <laughs> you got an hour <laughs> or two? And we keep continuing. There's Andre Miller. There's Kenneth Fareed. There's Ty Lawson. There's management. Yeah. It's, 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 it was in a bizarre time in Denver because, you know, if you're coming from George Carl, who has a certain way of doing things, to Brian Shaw, who had a completely different way of doing things. And it was an adjustment for everyone, including the media. It's just there was a whole bunch of different things going on. It just it didn't feel right from the beginning. And I think some of that's not fair to Brian Shaw because he just didn't have a chance. He didn't have a chance for the fans because they fired a pocket the coach, you know. It just was it's just I think he will do better in a different place. And be that, you know I, I, he'll be somewhere. Let me just put it to you that way. Having said all and, that Having said all that, do you think it would be best for him to go back as an assistant at least for a couple of years and then maybe try being a head coach before just trying to go back and be a head coach again? That's a good question because how many interviews did he have before he got the Nuggets job? At least 10. Right? Yeah. And, and a job like Orlando, that was one I think he, he had a real shot out and he told them no because he thought it was a mm-hmm. corrupt situation. And maybe it just got to I got to take a stab at one of these. And so that was Denver. It could, it, you know, and listen, it, it's, it's one of those situations where you, it, it, like I said, if, if Josh Kroenke looks back on it, I'm sure he would have reversed the process and brought in Tim Connolly first and without interviewing coaches and doing all that he was doing in rushing and all that stuff. If Brian Shaw had to do it over again, he would consider the roster first and understood that the roster maybe didn't under, couldn't do what he was trying to implement. There was a, a lot of different things that had to happen at the same time. Um, and uh, it's, it, it'll, it'll work out better for him. As far as him being an assistant coach, I, I hope it, it, it just took a long time for him to become a head coach. And I wouldn't, if he's going to do it, 
I wouldn't want him to be, get that stigma as a failed coach and then a forever assistant. But, you know, it worked for P.J. Carlissimo like four times. So it could probably work for, for Brian Shaw. And some coaches, it, it seems, are just meant to be that assistant, that lead assistant guy. They're just not made out. They don't have the leadership or the command or the presence to be the top guy, especially in the NBA where it's a player's league. Yeah, Okay. exactly. Well, and how much triangle did they run in Indiana? Not very much. I think they tried a few things, but not not really much at all. He he was a big proponent of it, but he insisted that he would never try it, and then he, he, he tried it. He, I think one of the things is that I think the triangle can work in the NBA, okay? But I, you have to have the right players, and it's a long process in identifying the right players, and it's such a philosophy other than a system that is sharing the basketball, all this stuff. You have valuing all this, you know, the stuff that basically the NBA is very free-form right now. I was going to say, it feels like the NBA game today, the free-flowing game that it is, has just passed that philosophy on by and proved, hey, let's, let's do something else. Time to get, let there, that go. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, look at, I mean, look at what the Pacers tried to do last year, you know. It's Larry Bird seems like he really wanted to do the small ball thing and kind of do an up-tempo uh, system and it just didn't necessarily jive with the players they had on the roster. I mean, you still got to have the right players, and I think if with anything you're going to run, you're just going to have to show adaptability and show that you're willing to play to the best players on your roster. And I think Brian understands now that's what he has to do. Anything else you think Pacer fans should know about the era of Brian Shaw, the short-lived era there from Denver? We've touched on a lot. That transpired. <laughs> well, I, I want to say that it wasn't as it got amplified because Brian, uh, because Shaw did two media hits, one in Chicago and one in, uh, I believe it was Los Angeles, where he was talking to friends, reporters he knows, and it made it seem like things were more out of control than they were. I'll be 100% honest with you. It never got as bad as it was made out to be. It was bad, but it wasn't out of control. And I think part of that hurt Shaw. I think part of him going out there and saying things like that about the the guard, the you know the trash on the plane, or uh, you know not relating to millennials, which I think if you asked him today, he would say, "I will not say that again." And I see him as a guy that comp- that's one of his biggest strengths is he can relate to the guys. Maybe it's changed a little bit. I remember the story about him banning like chicken tenders before the game, which so many of the guys eat. It's, it's you know, and Larry Bird, I mean, I think he was influenced by Larry Bird a lot, too. And, you know, that Larry is Mr. No-Nonsense and was famous, I think, for leaving a player on, a, on the tarmac in Indiana when he was coach. Because they were late for the plane. I mean, there, there are. <laughs> when Larry Bird has a press conference, he had one last Thursday to announce moving on from Frank Vogel. It said 11 a.m. Typically, you'll have some media members trickle in late, right? So everybody was in their seat by 10:55 because by 10:59, you know he's on his way. <laughs> I'm dead serious. <laughs> And we love it because it sets an expectation. Because nowadays, take tonight's game, 8 p.m. tip-off. You know it's not going to tip till 8, 12, 8, 15. Well, there's something to be said for that that kind of uh, structure and consistency. I mean, you've had, Larry Bird's been there since the late 90s. And 
front office consistency is part of it. So you are following Larry Bird's vision of this team. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to kind of have that guiding light, good or bad, going through the whole thing. So, I mean, I know that Brian Shaw had a great relationship with Frank Vogel, and he spoke of him constantly when he was in Denver. Mm, okay. And I think Vogel, whatever happened with him and, and Bird there, I do think that Shaw deserves another chance because, I mean, listen, I think he would be, but the players that are on the roster right now in Indiana, I think he'd be perfect for the, the Pacers, to be honest with you. Yeah. I think he would coach them really well. How I look at it, too, is if you take Larry Bird for his word, and this is what I wrote today at VigilantSports.com, if you take him for his word, he, the two things he stressed is we need a guy that's motivating and we need someone that's in our player's ear. First thing I thought of, Brian Shaw. He may not be the best X and O's. He may not be the best at in-game adjustments, but by goodness, he's going to have the, those players motivated and ready to go for whatever task they have. Well, Paul, and Paul George likes him. And when your best player likes the coach, generally the players under the, under that best player will fall in line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said he's been a, a big mentor, and, and I looked up to him then, and I still do today. Hell, Brian Schaub flew to Indianapolis before the season last year to go fishing with PG. That's what kind of relationship they have. That's a, that's a good relationship, and that's what you need. I mean, imagine Greg Popovich without Tim Duncan. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't work. It would not work. And Duncan has allowed Popovich to be Popovich. And I think that kind of relationship will go very far for Brian Shaw, specifically since he has such a great relationship with Paul George. That means other players, I mean, who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what Larry, who Larry Bird's going to hire? Sure. But if he got that opportunity, you're already at um, step two because you already have a good relationship between Brian Shaw and Paul George. Jeff, you are excellent. I really appreciate your insight from Denver and enlightening us on this whole Brian Shaw situation. What went down exactly with the Nuggets? Uh, Well, thank you very much, and thanks for having me on. For more on the Pacers search, I'm pleased to welcome in Paul Coro, a longtime beat reporter for the Arizona Republic. How are you doing, Paul? Good guy. How are you? Doing well. It's been a little bit crazy the last uh, week or so. I thought the season was dying down, and then Larry Bird all all of a sudden decides, yep, uh, time for a new voice in the locker room. So what we've tried to do here is list some possible candidates for this job. Although it wouldn't surprise me if Larry Bird totally goes off the map and and goes with a hot up-and-coming assistant or someone he has ties to. Jeff Hornacek and Mike D'Antoni, two guys you've covered over in Phoenix, and I just wanted to get your uh, your take on what they would be as coaches. But first, before we get to that, it's funny because the Suns turned to a young guy, former Pacer at one time, Earl Watson. What was it about his coaching style that really resonated in Phoenix that they wanted to bring him on full-time after serving as head coach on an interim basis. Yeah, I actually joke with Earl Watson that his most memorable moment prior to this for Suns fans was when he was a pacer and knocked Steve Nash in the nose and <laughs> had that or a bloody uh, lip, I think it was, actually, at the time. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So he's, he's had to earn good graces uh, in Phoenix. But he, he won them over just with kind of bringing um, some accountability – um, some direct messaging as far as roles, you know, very specific role defining. Um, you know, you got your feel of Earl. He's a very serious, deep thinker. 
He's a communicator. Um, the players appreciated that. He went over the locker room, and all those guys wanted him back. You know, the, the Suns are at a point with such young players that they're still in development with a lot of their core guys. You know, like most of their their guy, their young core guys like Alex Lynn and Brandon Knight and Eric Bledsoe, those guys are all 22 to 26, and now Devin Booker, he's still 19. So, uh, And what an outstanding early, early. talent he has been. Really liked his first year. Yeah, he's, you know, amid a horror show of a season, <laughs> he was uh, the absolute highlight for Suns fans. Everybody's in love with him in Phoenix because he's, uh, he's just as good as can be off the court, too, and uh, he showed so much more than anybody thought he had at uh, Kentucky where he was just pretty much defined as a spot-up shooter, but uh, he proved he can uh, handle the ball, pass well, good thinker, got a long way to go on defense, but... Uh, He's not afraid of the moment, and he wants to be great. Let's turn to Jeff Hornacek. He was a head coach for two and a half seasons prior to that, an assistant with Utah. The big thing with him and with D'Antoni is their offense, and, and Larry Bird's all, been all about, let's jumpstart the offense. We need to up our offensive rating. And well, that's something Hornacek did in his first year, 29th to 8th. How would you define his coaching style, specifically on the offensive end? Well, he got defined a lot by their by the two playmaker system they were using uh, at first with Bledsoe and Dragic, and then later when personnel changed and they had Isaiah Thomas, it almost became a problem when they had the three point guards at one point. And uh, this year they were going to go Bledsoe Knight, and then Bledsoe had the knee surgery. So, but that's just more Hornacek catering to what the roster strengths were. It's not like he's a guy that's like, man, I totally believe in this two playmaker system. Um, you know, he just wanted to find a way to best use those guys' skills, and they were both sort of scoring point guards, and he thought if they could go side to side, they would be able to expose matchups, you know, depending on who was trying to guard who on the other side. And no matter what, you could attack, run, pick, and roll from either side, uh, depending on matchups. So he's he's big about uh, that. You know, he comes a lot from the, uh, the Jerry Sloan sort of ways. Uh, he believes in... You know, guys laying it all out there, uh, you know, being smart players, structured. I think his frustration over the years uh, grew when, you know, guys weren't catching on to what he expected. You know, it's always hard when you're a player like Jeff Hornacek who was an all-star at one point and players don't see the game like you did or don't don't extend the same effort as you. And, and uh, so that's where things sort of went sideways at the end uh he was he obviously knows how to coach he was coach of the year runner-up to popovich in that first season that's like winning it if you're a runner-up to popovich popovich uh, legitimately could win it every year and i don't yeah, think there would be right. an argument and, and that year that he won it it was sort of a lifetime achievement award it wasn't you know like he did any greater <laughs> job that year than other years yeah hornacek obviously had the marvelous turnaround and then uh you know i think they had the the most wins in the 16-team playoff era to not make the playoffs <laughs> of any team. So some bad luck there too. But um, he's he's a good talker. He's he's uh, he's a straight shooter. He doesn't really uh, that would fit with Bird. <laughs> yeah, and, and you kind of you know saw that come to fruition this season with the Marquise Morris stuff. Everybody thought you know he had this horrible relationship with Marquise Morris, and actually it was quite the opposite. If anything. The, the communication level, level was so comfortable, maybe too comfortable, where Marquise reacted in the way he did. Um, but uh, Hornacek 
was put in a bad place too going into the season. He he had a he was a lame duck because they didn't pick up his contract extension, so all the players knew he was in the last year of his deal. And uh, you know he, he had the Marquise Morris thing, he trade demand entering the season hanging over them. Uh, just just some difficult things from the beginning to be uh, the type of team that they expected to be, and then the injuries just killed them. Paul, do you define him as a player's coach, or does he kind of lean on his assistant coaches to be the bad cop and such? No, he doesn't ask anybody to be the bad cop because he's definitely uh, he's definitely communicative about issues and stuff like that. He's he is more of a a calming voice, though. He's we always wondered going into it because he had such a good guy, nice guy reputation. If he could really jump into guy. And he definitely did that. Did that, you know, in huddles he would be screaming at him. Uh, you know, he'd slam the scores table. And it was funny because he, going into it, he'd say, oh, "I'm not going to be one of those coaches that yells and screams and stuff like that." <laughs> and he then he about 20 games later he was, you know, he was just as frustrated. <laughs> then, then it kind of developed, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he'd like you know, if a set wouldn't be going the right way, he'd spin away and walk to the bench before the play was even over because he. To him, it didn't matter what the outcome, whether they scored or not. They didn't do, they didn't execute the way he wanted. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the at the time, his assistants were for the most part Jerry Seasing and Mike Longabardi. Uh, Longabardi's now on the Cleveland staff, and um, he leaned on those guys some, but uh, not too much. Jeff was a really uh, brilliant guy as far as drawing up stuff. Like he was really good. Uh, timeout guy, uh, just like the other guy um, you'll mention, Mike D'Antoni, he's probably the best I've seen at that. How about defensively? What do his teams look like on the defensive end? Well, I think he he talks a lot about accountability on that end. Um, you know, a lot of their defensive uh, tactically was turned over to Mike Longabardi at the time, who was a, a Thibodeau disciple. So um, a lot of their defensive scheming was a plan of both guys work together. So is it kind of uh, like a coordinator so. system? Yeah, it definitely was. Although, you know, Jerry Seasing was sort of in charge of the offense, but I, I don't think, I think we all knew that Jeff Hornacek was the offensive okay. line, and maybe uh, Seasing was the guy that would get, get up and give him a lot of suggestions and that kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's not that Jeff doesn't know defense. Uh, I don't think anybody's touting his defensive prowess as a player and saying that's going to carry over. But uh, he is a coach's son. And so a lot of that comes through in everything he does. He's very uh, traditional about the way he he looks at some of those things. Now let's turn our attention to Mike D'Antoni, well-known across the league. He's kind of the godfather, many people think, of this new offensive style that's taken the league by storm, run-and-gun offense. Where did that originate for him? Well, I think a lot of it came from Italy when he was uh, playing and coaching over there for most of his career. Um, He had the one short-failed in Denver where he didn't really get much of a chance there and um, then really crafted the way he wanted to do things in Italy, uh, more of that European mindset of spreading the floor and, and sharing the ball and those sort of, sort of things. And then he brought those tenants to Phoenix. He was first an assistant and took over midseason uh, right before they got Steve Nash. And, I mean, again, the players dictate kind of what you want to do too. And you get Steve Nash and, and you have Joe Johnson and, they had signed Quentin Richardson and Sean had Sean Marion and Amari Stoudemire, and he said, you know, about after tinkering with a couple things in the preseason, he kind of just said, I'm just going to play my best five guys. And Amari Stoudemire might be a power forward, but he's going to be the five. And Sean Marion may be a three, but he's going to be the four. And we're just going <laughs> to we're going to have the best guys out there. And he turned the offense over, uh, was really ingenuitive with the pick and roll, and uh, 
capitalizing on threes, running to the corners. Joe Johnson, that first year, set a franchise record. I think he shot 48% on threes, or 46 or 48% that first year. Um, and they were just, you know, as you remember, they were, like, wildly entertaining. Nobody, nobody had seen anything like it. And they caught everybody off guard every night because their pace was so furious um, that eventually, much like the Warriors now, eventually they just break you down and wear you down when they have that kind of challenge. How do you feel about the way the NBA seems to be turning and everybody's trying to push the pace and get going and maybe have more of a free-flowing kind of offense rather than your traditional sets, allow kind of the players to read and react? Yeah, it's, you know, you wonder if it's ever going to have, if a big man or something's ever going to come along to to reverse the tide a little bit. Yeah, I wonder if this is just a fad, a thing that's going to occur for four or five years and maybe once the Warriors di- get back to reality uh, of of an NBA franchise, and maybe maybe it will turn back. <laughs> but I, I also think it's the evolution of players. You know, when the three-point shoot, shot was invented, nobody took it, nobody was good at it, and shooters have become gradually better and better at that because for a lot of kids growing up, that's all they practice, and they don't practice mid-range games. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like a guy like T.J. Ward on the Suns, he's like a, a neophyte, you know, he's... <laughs> He's uh, using all this old man YMCA game that you don't see anymore in the league. Um, and the old metrics came along and the value of a three versus two. It just drives me crazy, especially when you watch some of these end-of-the-game possessions where somebody, you know, in a one-point game, somebody jacks up a fadeaway three-pointer. <laughs> and that's just it just seems to become too lenient on that. But the but with the way the athletes and the talent is, has gone to mostly perimeter players, even the bigs being able to, to shoot like they can, it, it's just made sense for coaches to spread out defenses and open up driving lanes and you know either carve them up for layups or, or wide-open threes on driving kick. And recently where the Pacers have really pushed things is in transition. That's where they, they lean on their defense to get out and breaks, and then that's where they're at their best offensively. Not too good when it comes to half-court offense we've seen over the past couple of years. Yeah, I don't think many teams are anymore. You know, I, I, it's very rare that you see somebody like the, the Spurs uh, that is so uh, so fine in their execution. Uh, you know, like, a lot of that is coaching. We talked about Pop being the greatest one and, you know, just teaching things like screens. Somebody who has, you know, the art of a, of a decent screen. It makes such a big difference in pick and roll play especially. How about uh, entry passes? Somebody... That's a lost art, I think, in the NBA right now. Yeah, absolutely. Not everybody can do them either. You know, you make me think of Nash. Steve Nash, one of the greatest passers in the history of the game, when they got Shaq, he could not throw a post-entry pass because <laughs> they never, they never were a post-up team. That's and amazing. It was, it was, it was hard for Steve Nash to put it where Shaq had been used to get it because he'd never. I mean, I'm not saying he's terrible about it, but for a guy that throws behind the back, between the leg, no look overhead. <laughs> passes on point all the time it was the, the simple uh, post entry was tough <laughs> earlier you mentioned mike d'antoni paul and how his play calls and after timeouts were, were so exceptional what stood out to you about them um that it was it wasn't anything a lot of times it wasn't anything they'd practiced. it was something that he'd seen on the floor and for the personnel he was going to have going in the game okay at the time. um just it was his ATO stuff was very high efficiency. Uh, end of the game, you know, mid court inbound plays that 
even if they didn't score, it was a good shot. Uh, he's just he's just got a really brilliant mind in that regard. Um, he sees he sees everything. He tries to play this off shucks West Virginia simple guy, but uh, there's a brilliant mind up there. <laughs> One thing Larry Bird has mentioned is how he's really more than anything looking for a motivator, a guy that can get in the players' ears, really develop those young guys. Does Hornacek or D'Antoni more than more than the other really jump out at you as the guy that could be that motivator for the young guys? I wouldn't really call either of them high motivators in that regard. Okay. I mean, they're. I'm not saying they're not capable of motivating guys, you know, on a on a coach level, but not like they're not your Tony Robbins types that are <laughs> that are uh, instilling this uh, inner peace and belief about who they are and anything. They're they're more guys that they're going to lay it out there. They're going to expect you to do your job, um, but they're not uh, big rant and ravers. And if they if anything, they get frustrated with the guys that need motivation. During every coaching search, and it seems like there's seven or eight vacancies each offseason, are you surprised with the number of times that Mike D'Antoni comes up in the conversation, in the discussion for a team's new head coach? Yeah, that's good because he's had four coaching turns now. And, you know, in Phoenix, it was the winningest coaching, or winningest era of Suns basketball for, for what they did. You know, mid-50s, low-60s wins for for multiple years and conference finals trips and everything like that. Um, and, and so when I think of him not getting other chances, I, I think about the jobs he took after here. You know, I always thought he should have taken the Bulls job instead of the Knicks job when he left. And he would have had Derrick Rose and, and things would have gone from there. Um, you know, and he initially had success with New York, but then when they changed the roster um, and injuries from there, that, that really uh, – crimped what he could do in the Lakers situation was what that was. Um, so I just don't feel like he ever got the same crack to, to show how good he is in those opportunities. Uh, I almost am, was, I'm a little surprised that he would still want to reenter. I mean, he's, <laughs> after the, the money he made off of those LA and New York type contracts, you know, he could, he could go away and have a nice retirement, but the burn to coach is obviously still there. So I took the Philadelphia job. Uh, he definitely still wants to coach. He had interest in the in the Phoenix job. Um, so, you know, he, for Mike to be successful, and he's learned some lessons from his Phoenix stand, he's he's going to have to be, you know, open to, like, a, a strong defensive coach on his staff to, to help there. Um, you know, it, it, he always says if he could go back to it, he would have – he wishes he would have had a little bit more time away from his last – season and not made such a harsh decision to to leave because he he know he knows he had a good thing here mm-hmm. and the frustration and expectations grew so much that it, it drove him away but uh he wishes he had just t- taken some time away to realize what was still going on here and what he had last thing from a selfish standpoint we've been blessed to deal with frank vogel one of the best just from a media standpoint how are these two when dealing with on an everyday basis uh they're both great uh you know the the sad part about Mike is I think the the New York <laughs> the New York experience drained a lot of <laughs> oh uh, I could imagine man because uh, it just got to a point where it was he couldn't be himself anymore I, I, he aged like a president during that time uh, it was so rough on I me mean, he wasn't the same same guy I mean he was he's an unbelievable person uh, to be around on a, on a daily basis uh, just you know. And for media's sake, you know, he's got great quips all the time. He's so witty and funny, but uh, great basketball insight, too. You know, 
sometimes defensive, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, very defensive about what he uh, what he thinks and what, what he believes in, uh, but never in a in a antagonistic way. And, and Jeff Hornacek, like I said, he's a straight shooter. I never, if I asked him a question, he always had an answer. He didn't dodge it. I like that. No comment. It. He, if I whatever I was asking, he was going to answer it in the most direct way he could. Excellent. And, and again, another great person, a great family he's got too. Excellent, Paul. I really appreciate your insight and schooling us up on two potential candidates. We just with Bert, you just don't know because there are zero leaks when it comes to the Pacers franchise. Yeah, yeah. If anything, the only thing you get is the denials about who he, who he would. You know, right? Like the Kevin McHale's and that kind of thing. Yeah, it makes me wonder if either a they don't have a great relationship, or b he knows he couldn't fire him if he has to. Yeah, that's what I took from his comments about that. That you know. He doesn't want somebody that's that close to have to deal with in that sort of way where you criticize and butt heads on things. He'd rather keep his relationships good with those guys. He also maybe Rick. He'd try to get Rick Carlisle back too, right? He's one though that you just wonder how many close close friends he has. Yeah, you know, I've, I haven't had a lot of dealings with him, but I did. I was working on an Earl Watson feature during the season, and I I talked to him when I was there in Indy and. Uh, you could tell some of the qualities he appreciated in a coach because he he identified those in Earl as a player that he had he had the respect of the locker room that he saw the game in a different way. He said he said it was just obvious the way you, some people stand out in that way. And when Earl was leaving, he said that they told him at the time that you should really think about a future in coaching, and that's what stoked Earl's. Uh, career goal in that way more than anything larry bird's conversation with him yeah he was really impressive when he was here so it didn't surprise maybe how early he got a head coaching gig but it didn't surprise me that he did become a head coach eventually really enlightening stuff my thanks once again to jeff morton and paul coro my shout out to this week goes to tamika catchings as she begins her final WNBA season and she has meant a ton to this city i could go on and on and on about her impact with the Indiana Fever, the WNBA, and Indianapolis. Subscribe to the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, and I'd very much appreciate it if you took one minute to fill out a review. Otherwise, I'll talk to you again next week.